Is data now a weapon? Is it the way forward? Is data a window into our future? Is it the new oil? Is data a geopolitical game changer? Is it a friend or foe to American democracy? How do we know? How do we know anything? Welcome to Data Reveal. Welcome to the Data Reveal podcast. This is our retrospective. Mark Fidelli here, of course, joined by Courtney Hastings and Andrew Churchill. What's up? Hello. Howdy. Happy 2022. We just finished what we can call our first season of the Data Reveal podcast. And I don't know what constitutes a season in podcast world. Ten, ten or so episodes felt like right about the right number. And uh, I've learned a lot. This is my first time kind of hosting one. What, what are your guys' first thoughts heading into the new year, thinking about, you know, and we'll go through each of the episodes, highlights in a minute, but just uh, how did it feel to, to do this, this fun new thing? Well, we had, I, I thought it was, um, we had this scheduled, I think, for the past couple of weeks and to have it come right after the 10th episode, I think is pretty great, but it was a lot of fun. I never thought that I could keep up with words with you guys, but I'm glad we made it happen. Yeah, I I got to tell you, I, I wasn't like, yay, when, when this <laughs> concept came up, but uh, you all are fun people to uh, discuss topics with. And Mark, you've pulled together an incredible set of, of guests, such interesting topics. I, yeah. The one thing, and I know we're going to talk about those different episodes and the, the discussions we had, but wow, what variety mm-hmm. uh, in, in terms of topics. It was fantastic. Yeah. I mean, when, when I started, uh, I leaned back on my you know master's degree in communications 20 years ago and think when I had college radio, and it's so funny that Jim McHugh, you know, one of our guests from Big Bear had this background too. And this guy, Ian Mitchell, who I just recently met, you know, was like playing music on our show. There's something about the medium of a podcast. It's like a voice. It's kind of in your house, like you're talking to people, but it's, you can be heady and talk about topics that you just don't know where it's going to go. So it's the funnest part for me is you can ask the kind of questions that steer and you're just hoping like, ooh, are they going to say something really interesting? But you don't know. And then they do. And it's like I'm scribbling down notes and it's like, oh, I got to do justice to that topic. Up oh, next topic. You just it's like you, you just blow past these themes. Like, for example, Monica Breidenbach was talking about what Gen Xers or Gen Zers should be issued first day on the job to you know sort of keep them retained. I could have had like a whole episode about that. Like she was talking. I was like, oh, I was like writing down. So what I love about it is just it gets my juices flowing in a way that actually satisfies, I think, what I wanted to do when I grow up when I was in college and did not at all plan to be in the tech space, let alone national security. Goodness gracious. Yeah, I uh, I also was a, a college radio DJ. And, oh, yes. <laughs> and my idea before I learned how little it paid was to go into news radio. So, yeah, it's been a little bit of a college dream for me as well. And I, I like that you brought up Monica's episode. I actually went back over the past couple of days and listened to all of the episodes and mm. hers in particular just sort of tied everything together. I mean, Andrew's right. We talked about such a variety of topics, but we'll probably get into this more, but it's just everything that we talked about centered around people. Mm-hmm. We talked about 
behavior and generational differences, engagement, data literacy, mental and physical health, living with purpose and human in- intuition. I mean, it's mm. all about people. And we proved our ability to roll with it, you know, uh, <laughs> on, on some uh, pretty uh, interesting third rail type of topics. Uh, yeah. Domestic violent extremism. MDMA. You know, MDMA for, yeah. for treating mental illness. And it just goes that there's great conversations. Taboo topics should not be avoided. They should be, uh, you know, we should rally around uh, any interesting person in any interesting topic. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. And and I'm just going to do a quick plug for our friends at the Thought Partner Group and their vision, Thought Leader Path. They really nudged us to see podcasting as a bridge between the human side and the business side of the work we do. And so much of federal podcasting news is stuff that's on the front page, political appointees, elected officials. But we deal with the rank and file of folks that are just trying to get the job done with much less fanfare. Honestly, you know, sort of many more tools in most cases than even the high level people that get the attention. And to talk to them and to become aware of that. Uh, I'm really grateful that our partners, Kent and, and his team over there, really nudged us to treat this as a podcast, not a big commercial, which stretched us a little bit. But I think we were up for it and our guests were certainly up for it. So they also came up with that snazzy intro and outro music, too. Yeah, I loved that. This could be like a fan voting thing. So if, if anybody listens and has comments and, you know, shoot us a, a tweet or whatever, DM if you think we should have different episodes or different seasons of music, we could mix it up or we could keep the same. I don't know. But uh, I, I love that. I loved what we had. The podcasts I listen to have like multiple intros and I'm like, wait a second, we can, you know, have our home and away jerseys and the whole bit. So I <laughs> anyway, that's why I'm not in marketing, Courtney. Thank you. <laughs> Talk about stretched. The very first episode, my good friend, David Gartenstein-Ross, PhD, super big brain, and down-to-earth, knows his stuff, has written extensively on his own sort of journey into radicalization, specifically sort of pre-9-11 or actually post-9-11 and and how that's shaped his work. And the the sort of ongoing theme of what have we learned from 9-11 and what did we get right, that turned into his big topics, at least that I took away, is, you know, sort of ownership that for David to take that topic on, you know, sort of headfirst, it set the tone for everything. And he did it in a positive way. Like we have to own what it means to be inclusive and what he called it inclusive nationalism. Like our identity as Americans is more fundamental than, you know, left, right. And you know, we have something to steward. We have an an ownership mandate. So that was the first thing he talked about. And the second is sort of having an us-ness dashboard right out of that, right? Like, can can we have a set of metrics that somehow measure the human side of this thing that we do so it doesn't just sound all wonky? When I listened back on that particular episode, I kind of forgot that we had this conversation, which was really great and really timely and relevant, not only to what we were talking about with September 11th, but certainly January 6th is, you know, being open to all of the conversations, all of people's thoughts and ideas and not immediately politicizing them. And sort of, you know, what we talked about that we try and do on this podcast is, you know, discuss those third rail topics in a way that is is thoughtful 
and not necessarily provoking. Yeah. And with that one really big, and that was a, that was like a, a shotgun start, you know, talk yeah. about topics we covered. He was such, you know, a, an informed person talk about mm. an expert yeah. in a, on a topic in a field, really tremendous. That conversation was exceptionally smooth across three of us never having <laughs> done it before and having this yeah. really brilliant guy with so much to cover. So next we had, I guess it was Chris Wilson. So Chris Wilson is a colleague. So that was easy because to go from David to Chris, you have two government, like experienced government leaders, uh, David more on the sort of outside private sector, Chris more on the government sector, but no less credibility in his space. So what thing he said was what the word joint means now, like joint solutions. We're at this point in sort of technology, digital technology, data being integrated, systems being brought together, and in sort of this military world, integrated deterrence is the Secretary of Defense Austin sort of big theme, bringing things together to show that we're really capable Joint was what he called a significant inflection point, a leap forward. That's an interesting term. I don't know if you guys remember that. Yeah, we talked a lot. That was, I think, the one where we talked a lot about interoperability. And it became sort of, and it, it is again now, um, got the call today that Loyal was determined to have been in close contact with someone at school who uh uh, was tested positive for COVID. So I'm having my PTSD <laughs> of 2020 <laughs> potential lockdown, but know that, you know, the, the systems in our lives, in our personal lives and the technology that we rely on all working together are key to everything working in an optimal way. Yeah. Joint is more than government now. Joint in our digital world since 9-11 is now much bigger. That's a great point. We did talk about war rooms, so I'm going to nerd out a little bit because I love this whole idea of creating rooms where inclusive decisions, multi-generational decisions can happen with folks kind of looking at different screens and asking questions kind of together. It's like the next level of meeting. I actually wrote down translator, leadership, interoperability, kind of like three lines together. And, you know, his point was there's a certain amount of data literacy that's needed to get everybody to that level. We as Click, this is actually maybe a drill down topic for a whole episode. We've had data literacy as part of what we do for quite a while, data literacy as a service. And it's sort of always there with, you know, sort of the support we provide to the government. What do you think of data literacy now versus when we started? Has, have your thoughts on that changed? What it means to, to be knowledgeable about data, how to think about data, how to translate data? How, how have you personally grown in that, in that way, each of you? So I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but it was really Monica writing back that yeah. that that conversation that sort of changed my view of data literacy. I mean, as you said, Mark, we we talk about it all the time. We don't always do a great job of defining it or putting KPIs around it. And her point was really, you know, when do we get to the point where we, we define data literacy as a soft skill, like good communication skills or you know, right. those things that you just assume that every worker has. And that I thought was just uh, a really strong point and changed my, the way that I think about data literacy, the way I talk about data literacy. Yeah. And for me, the thing that I, I end up talking about a lot, it's the cultural part of it. 
you could bring the most exceptional skilled people together in any take take any skill data literacy some athletic capability academic capability and put them together and without culture that empowers them to work together and perform to their to the extent of their abilities they're not going to excel and you know i think that i think is one of the, the pieces that i'm recognizing a lot is that there's a lot of incredible data people out there in organizations. And I'm not going to say that those organizations stifle, but they are not empowering. They, they aren't breaking policy barriers down for people to do things. They're mm. not democratizing access. They're not inclusive in the participatory component of, of their data systems design. You know, I think that I will, you know, over 22 continue to hear me rant about that. And coming back to the question that you were asking about Chris Wilson, and actually even to your your point, this this idea of joint is more than technology, is more than data. Yeah. The human side of joint is exactly what we're talking about. You know, joint in the way that you're talking about it commands cross-organizational execution of X. Look at COVID and look at the fact that you just that you hear this that the story of COVID 20 years from now is going to be our failure to jointly execute at the, at the global, national, municipal, household, and individual level with responsibility for the community as a whole. And I'm not without pointing fingers. This isn't the vaxxed versus unvaxxed. This is just a lot too many people. Yep. I want to go out. I'm bored. I, I want to go out tonight. And then I bring home my germs to mom and dad. Yep. That's that, that joint concept. <laughs> it's same thing. The next person that we had, Monica McEwen, is someone we know well and is a friend of each of ours and friend of the firm. And, and she's at Deloitte now doing amazing things in their cognitive and analytics group. We talked about the inflection point in a very similar way. And we didn't prompt this. She said, look, there's cloud, there's you know, AI and the translation of AI and the trustworthiness of AI is, is coming along. Eventually, there's going to be cognitive diversity with machines sitting alongside people. And if the people can't get together, then the machines are just, well, who knows? Two days ago, I watched the new Matrix. It just scratches your head about AI. But if we don't do sort of cognitive diversity well, we actually create space for AI to sort of bad scenarios to take place, not just problems, but the wrong kinds of solutions. And that was one of my big takeaways with Monica is like, we have to actually fill the gap where, where there isn't cognitive diversity, where modernization is happening in technology, but the people aren't thinking about it in a, as you said, Andrew, empowered way. We're actually, we're going to spend money on bad things. And this is not the time in history to have a bunch of bad things because the world's getting more full of risks. Her point is, Everyone has to get their data involved. We can't have silos. That was her big pound the table moment. I mean, that's that might be the hardest thing to solve in the government because policy and incentives just force sort of the stovepiped data sets to live on forever. But we're seeing some of that change. Honestly, how do you gauge your sort of enthusiasm for the the next phase of of the work that needs to be done? As she said, to to take these technical catalysts and make them like really work and solve problems for us because it's it's there for us to do. 
I'm extremely hopeful. I mean, we're talking now about what our, uh, you know, up to our fifth episode. And we have, so out of those five episodes, we had four leaders in our industry in their own separate industries that are that are very hopeful and really speaking the same language and not to you know ruin a surprise but we have you know four more that we're going to talk about that all seem very helpful and you were sort of alluding to this mark but um, just these terms that these individuals covered in these episodes they all really speak to the same thing and to something really positive you know cognitive diversity and inclusive nationalism and interoperability it's all about inclusion and working together mm. and that's i think very positive love it and you know from a i think there was also a running theme that look the next generation has a ton of potential to bring about some significant change in well everything yeah uh you know they're they're more digitally native we talked about that a lot they are more expectant of having data that they are data driven they are through just the education that they're receiving more more made aware of other people's feelings of mm. cultural differences and norms. I think they're more prepared than the, we were from day one. So if we sit there and go, what are we hopeful for is that there is uh, fertile ground to sow the seeds of betterness, usness, yes, <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lot of things, and to bring it back to the data side, mm -hmm. more informed formed action and decision making. I, I think, you know, that's, yeah. you know, that, that we heard that almost everywhere, you know, in almost all of the conversations, the ones we've already hit on and the ones that we're about to talk to. When we talked with our next guest, Femi Ayan Badejo, former Baltimore Ravens, NFL player, broadcaster, entrepreneur, when he started talking about self-health and the ability to take data that is way beyond what we thought we could measure about ourselves, put it on an app, make it a platform with others to share. Talk about something to be hopeful for. If each of us knew, as he said, this is a direct quote, our health is tied to each other. There's nothing more basic and fundamental, Andrew, like you said, at the individual level of usness, if us automatically includes me and each of us individually with our own self-health. And that that's measurable. That's insane. This idea of self-health is a reframe of how we think about data. Like that is a fundamental change to how, but it's, it's not a fundamental change to how young people think, right? It's the data just hasn't been used in that way. But I think most young people do self-care well. Naturally, they know they're prepared to sort of handle, maybe not stress the way, I mean, they're called snowflakes and that's unfortunate, right? But I agree. So how did you guys feel about sort of some of the like having a curriculum and and learning and sharing information and, and building traditions with others that improve your own self-health? That was a pretty radical, radical thing. I agree uh, with you on that. I think uh, the next generation is more prepared in part because of tools like HealthReal and people like Femi. By the way, that was just yeah. such a fun conversation. Yeah. Um, I love that it has the little like E for explicit next to it. Yes. <laughs> and I also love that he called me court. I thought that was the <laughs> cutest thing ever. But yeah, it, and like you said, like just his energy and his focus on the 
combination of mental health and physical health and Mm -hmm. really putting those on sort of equal playing fields and acknowledging their impact on each other um, was such a refreshing conversation. Yeah. Positive platforms like that, I think are so needed. You know, the one as a parent of, of teens mm-hmm. read a lot and heard a lot as a husband of a social worker heard, heard a lot, lot mm-hmm. about some of the challenges of the now era. You know, we talked about all this potential, but there's also, you know, just a lot of trouble people that, you know, I think feel very alone. And, you know, I do think, and it becomes so accustomed to online interaction, which isn't always terribly healthy. I think it actually often a lot of the venues they spend time in is tear down rather than build up. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, that concept there of, of self-health, but with peers, this this encouragement that comes from a, a platform, I, you know, and whether or not it is your physical health or anything else that you're trying to do, it was a great conversation. And as you said, such a positive guy, like, yeah. just can I bottle that up and, <laughs> and get some of that Femi energy? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So as we go to the next guest here, this is just seeds to put in your mind, listener, for your own thoughts. If, if especially you're thinking like, man, I'm one of those kind of alone people. I don't feel very hopeful. You know, it starts with self-assessment. Just be honest where you are. That's one of the most important things you could do is, is as he said, sort of self-awareness is where it starts. But then self-awareness plus selflessness equals self-actualization. Next, Monica Breidenbach, fantastic. We talked about human capital. We talked about her transition now. We knew it at the time. We couldn't announce it. Now we can. She's in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy as a workforce planning advisor. I think she still technically works for Office of Personnel Management, but was sort of on loan to the White House, which is wonderful. She said, building for the Gen Z digital native audience, building the workforce for them because of the great resignation specifically of young people from the federal government and, well, really, the departure of baby boomers and the government's inability to hire Gen Z, big challenge. That is not so hopeful. What are your guys' thoughts on on that? I mean, I think, again, I'll say, like, it's kind of repetitive what I said before. I mean, all of these conversations, of course, made me hopeful, but in part because there are people like Monica. There are the Monicas out there that are talking about this and they're in the positions that they need to be in, hopefully having the conversations that they need to have. Although she did allude to the fact that she could be part of more conversations Mm -hmm. and they could be more useful of data in making these decisions. But I think that, you know, there are people there that are recognizing that they have some issues that have some ideas about how to address them. And it's half, half the battle. That's right. I'm in the process right now of, of trying to hire, uh, and I've just completed, we just brought on two new people. Mm-hmm. And I've got to tell you that the challenges of engaging diverse recruits is, is tough. There are assumptions that end up being made about certain industries and workplaces, and it's about who works there. And it's hard to get out of those. I mean, software For sales. Example. Yeah, software sales has its own. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a very white male yep. industry. And when you go and try to find folks that, again, are diverse and not 
uh, the same as everybody you have today. It's not easy to go convince them mm-hmm. to sit there and say, hey, I have a job. And so when I hear what you know Monica's up against, I mean, it's like when you think about what that career workforce looks like at the in aggregate, I mean, there there's diversity in our federal right. workforce for sure. But in aggregate, it is very much still overwhelmed by an era that, you know, came in post-wars. Yeah. We'll call it post-war. Those people have long retired. Yeah. But like it's it's a challenge. And then, you know, more so the topic that we were getting on to is how do we bring on those problem solvers that are maybe more attracted to Silicon Valley or yeah, Wall right. Street or, you know, the next big thing. How, how do we make this an attractive place when we talked, you know, the thing we talked about as the attraction is you will never find bigger problems to solve. How do you convince right. them of that? But what an important conversation. And to me, like that, that conversation is so close to, to my heart in terms of what we do yeah. because we see it every day. Like we know we need, we need new ideas because our platform doesn't do anything without people to say, I see this, I can fix this. I can change this. What she say? 30% of the baby boomer workforce, the gray wave is retiring. And if folks that have been maybe taking longer to retire, because of COVID, they've just been able to work from home, maybe move to their retirement home and work from there in the last few years. If those folks all decide to retire tomorrow, that number is going to go up. And for those who are thinking about a job in federal IT, in a world where federal IT data helps you do your job, so it might not be in IT, it could be in H- in workforce planning, it could be in intelligence, it could be in operations, anything, you're going to get more data coming. We're in a world now where if you're Gen Z and you want to work as a federal government employee and be part of a change that pushes the government to be adaptive to you, now is the time to be part of that, right? Because they can't backfill those people fast enough. That was my takeaway is there's like, and that kind of got me pivoting to the activist kind of conversation. So when we we sort of built from Monica to Jim, to Jerry, you know, the conversation started to sort of turn back to the tactical side of data. So Jim McHugh from Big Bear AI, we talked a lot about leaders being intuitive and having so many different problems to solve, but the tools aren't always ready for their use. So even at the leadership level, one of the the sort of the detractors is tools could be used, but he said three out of 10, right, is the score he'd give for organizations in terms of their true ability to use the data that they have. I don't know what you guys' thoughts are now if we think about, okay, what are the big muscle movements that we could help influence in our little way? Those who are leaders of government organizations who want to improve the three out of 10 rating, and that's anecdotal, but I think it's probably about right across the board, the ability to use data effectively. It's there, it's just not being used. How do we help today's leaders, those older sort of Gen X, baby boomer, savvy folks, make it easier for Gen Z talent to use data and make it easy for for folks like us and our whole industry to put data in the hands of people to solve problems faster? What, What can we do to reduce that three out of 10 and flip it and make it a seven out of 10 in terms of the, the sort of readiness for data to be used? 
I know the right answer <laughs> is to prove <laughs> to prove success, but you know, yeah. in, in small batches. But I think what we talked about with Monica in the end was the answer being ultimately they're going to have to because if yeah. they really want this workforce, they want these Gen Z workers, they have to recognize that these Gen Z workers are coming with totally different expectations mm -hmm. about the tools that they're going to have, about their voice being able to be heard, about their involvement in decision making, their access to data. So if that's really what they want, then that's what's going to come with it. That's well said. I sit there and reflect on, you know, that same comparison. It to me it's the what if you do, what if you don't balance. Um despite all of our efforts to lock things down, despite the all of the controls that you put in place, the bad actors continue to gain access to things. Mm -hmm. So we are we've talked about Losing to China, for example, in innovation around AI, mm -hmm. you know, it came up in a, in a couple of you know, conversations here and there. And it's simply, what if we do? What, what, what if we're scared of the potential? And I think one of the things there is those organizations must make that data available and course correct every minute of every day. Do not mm. sit there and worry about what's going to happen. The capabilities are there mm. to support the creation of policy more rapidly than ever. And in response to what's happening now, how it's, who is using it? How is it being used? It doesn't have to be, well, let's, let's, let's spend six months defining policy. The, all of the governance, all of the capability, all of the barriers that, that you need to be able to drop exist cloud is is making it possible ai right. is making it possible and it will only get better so to everything that jim talked about what if we don't do it you know mm -hmm. we're hosed we're, we're yeah. really hosed that we won't recruit the people that monica talked about needing into the workforce because they'll be dissuaded by the just control the stodginess and we won't innovate we won't compete that's right it, it doesn't matter if that's innovation or if that's defense uh mm -hmm. you know it, it's it's a must do to make sense of the data, this was a big takeaway, and I'll pivot to Jerry next, is intuition. Leaders have to intuitively kind of know a lot. And if you take the combination of older workers and younger workers, what younger workers don't have is intuition about organizations and things like supply chains and China and cyber, all these sort of big topics. What they do have intuition is how to use data, how to share, how to share data, how to talk inclusively and listen. And that together is the sweet spot. That's like two forms of intuition. There are some unbelievably bright people working hard problems and have been doing it for a very long time. And that's where we got into it with, with Jim as far as leader's intuition. And now Jerry Simpson, sort of multi-serial entrepreneur, uh, CEO of KiteWire, an analytics provider in our industry. We talked about sort of how do moonshots happen? How do you get something significant to take root? And he said, look, Let's just start with PowerPoint. Let's go beyond PowerPoint. That was an interesting thought, right? I think that's a pretty deep intuition. What's your, what are your guys' thoughts on the tools that we use every day? What are some ways we could, I don't know, as a, as a bridge builder before between the older generation of leaders and the younger generation of workers, what tools could we help put in people's hands? Do we need to go beyond PowerPoint? You know, Jerry called it building a ways for innovation. Like how do you sort of adapt 
No, I think that's going to be a really big challenge with this next generation. I think we saw it a little bit when millennials entered the workforce and Mm -hmm. we started hearing terms like shadow IT. Mm -hmm. And I think it's not going to stop as you know, tools get more sophisticated. And as our workers, our workforce gets younger, um, they're going to want to bring the tools that they want to use into the workplace, which will create another set of issues. But we're going to have to figure out how to solve that. And that'll probably be a big conversation at Click. I mean, yeah, right. Like (laughs) Slack. Yeah. Like Slack, right? Yeah. I mean, just with the ability to, you know, use data from these devices to ensure that, everything is secure, but that people have access to the tools that make them most productive. That's right. Yeah. I, you know, conversation with Jerry uh, obviously had a very human side to it. You know, to answer your question specifically, I, collaboration. I mean, here we are yet again, probably looking in another four to six weeks of, you know, yeah. mostly Zoom platforms have emerged, but I'd come to semi enjoy Microsoft Teams. Yeah. But, you know, again, it, it's evolving, it's getting new features. And mm-hmm. I think the thing that can bring teams together and allow folks to work and collaborate and and exchange ideas, whether it's synchronously or asynchronously, are really needed right now. And, you know, you watch that, like, by the way, it's the, the biggest market even outside of business right now is this idea that people can listen to music together, watch yeah. movies together, is a really you know interesting thing, which leads back to some of the topics that we've talked about. It's about yeah. you know how do we bring people together, let them connect on rom com. Yeah, love you it because I know right. you love rom coms, Mark. I do, well, I do, I do, but only if I can connect with my wife wherever she might be in another room of the house because I chew loudly. So <laughs> <laughs> now that can solve that problem. The big takeaway with with Jerry, obviously, was he thinks that things like MDMA, things like PTSD treatments for our community, removing the stigma, even the security clearance risk doesn't happen because there are monopolies in play. And so if you're a business leader and innovator, the willingness to challenge unjust social structures, I mean, can we bring in the language of, I mean, gosh, I I so hate to say, I'm going to say it, what some call critical race, like they just put all these wrappers around it. I don't want to hear any of that left-wing crap. And I'm not, I'm a pretty center of the road guy, as far as I can tell, like I want everybody to succeed. And like, Andrew, I'm happy to offend anybody who's saying dumb things, right? And I care about what anybody thinks if if they're working hard to solve a problem, right? So that's sort of my politics, if you will. Uh, That includes a willingness to push back on the monopolistic systems that harm people And veterans are one of the most harmed communities. We know that for a fact. So I think one of the takeaways from this is if we're going to get the baby boomer to Gen Z bridge built and fill the workforce with the right folks, those who are in positions now to do so need to challenge exclusionary structures, period. And that means male dominance has to be challenged. This is about everyone is equal fundamentally and has a right to have a voice. If a decision impacts a group of people, that group should have representation in the decision-making process. That's proper and right. It's consistent with human rights and human values. Otherwise, our system doesn't work. Particularly if the decision is based on data, which I think that was the most important thing that I got. Well, not the most important thing, but probably the most poignant thing I got out of that conversation was just the amount of data that he had on all of these, you know, 
semi-controversial yeah. <laughs> treatments or, you know, statistics. I mean, it, it's impressive and it's hard to argue with. We finish with Ian, who is in the financial crimes industry and community, ready to retire. And then he just thought the human toll was too much for him to walk away from, redoubled his efforts, joined the Noble, was a founder, as a facilitator, and just decided to take it all personally and absolutely try to be a change agent. That was a great way to end this season. That was an excellent way to end the season. <laughs> and by the way, both of them, both yeah. Yeah, the, the last two were curveballs. Like I yeah. like just sit there going, wow, I didn't ever expect that fraud was going to come in with such a raw human, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. sort of cost that we're tying to it, or that we're going to end up talking to the serial entrepreneur whose, you know, most important thing at the moment was this population of veterans and mm. this controversial, you know, exper experimental treatment path that, you know, had all this data around, like really passionate about, uh, about these things. And while I think it was Ian was the one that talked about living a purposeful life, a meaningful yeah. life, both of them had that same sort of energy, that, that vibe that they both sort of had this disdain for you live life this way, you you operate within this, you know, sort of here's your lane, stay in your lane. They both said, yeah, and incredibly intelligent, passionate people that just had inspiring stories, effective as hell. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the last word on all of this is, is we all agreed, and this really is maybe our, our stopping point is you can create network effects when enough people like that are working and talking. And we hope that this podcast, we didn't know how it was going to end when we started, but it does become clear now that if we can create some amount of a, you know, this network effect of people listening, maybe sharing these episodes, let it challenge you. Let, let, let there be epiphanies, right? Because there are human impacts that data points to everywhere. And if you use data right, it's actually not about the data. It's about the people and the conditions that can be changed once the data reveals the ground truth. And tend to see people working hard to try to change that ground truth, you know, human trafficking, modern slavery, those types of scams, your grandparents, right? Maybe yourself. That's real. That's measurable. And I think Gen Z folks, back to that big gap in the workforce, if they can see and hear that that's what they could contribute to, what a meaningful life. What a meaningful career. And that's 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 what we touch every day. Come back next time, our dear friend, Loyal Hastings. Courtney, is she ready for this? We, we want to hear not our Gen Z or Gen X perspective, not even Gen Z. I don't even know whoever, what that generation yeah, is. Whoever our kids are, younger kids are from, we want to hear them think out loud about this. Not just, yeah, I'll just not tell just you us. this. The, the future is female if uh, Loyal has anything to do with it. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, cannot wait. Well, thank you guys both. This has been a joy and a challenge in all the right ways that kind of make you grow. So thanks on behalf of the whole Click Federal team for those listening. This really is our culture that we're trying to bring to you. This is how we do business every day. We're not here to give a commercial. We're here just to be engaging and hopefully to help others think about data in a human way. Thanks, Mark. Any last thoughts? Looking forward to 22 in a lot of ways. Uh, looking forward to a lot more interesting conversations. Uh, I thank both of you for 
the opportunity to uh, to spend this time talking about these really interesting ideas. We're gonna have to work really hard to do 2022 justice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no kidding. All righty, well, thank you both. Thanks all for listening. And we'll be back next time with Loyal Hastings to wrap up really the bonus, that's the bonus episode of season one. And I think we're gonna be a little more topical and drill down a little further into some specific areas in season two. Thank you and uh, good luck to all and stay safe and healthy in 2022.